You're listening to Pastor Mike Greiner of Harvest Community Church in Catanning, Pennsylvania. We pray that you'll be challenged today as you listen to a sermon entitled, Settling Our Anxious Souls, recorded on Sunday, August 21st, 2016, based on the book of Psalms, chapter 131. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org. Let's join Pastor Mike as he preaches. Well, um, I did not expect 2000, the summer of 2016 to be the summer where I was just away from home. In fact, last year, at this time, that wasn't on the radar. The only thing that was going to take me away from home was a week away at Southern Seminary, where I'm taking classes in Louisville. But then my mother decided it was time to go to heaven, and that took a couple of weeks up in Alaska, dealing with family matters and a funeral. And as it turns out, my mother is so important, she gets two funerals, because most of her family's in California, and they've planned a a memorial service, and I, the religious guy, get to fly out for that. So actually, uh, there'll be another week next week that I'm not here, because I'm at that memorial service. Then on top of that, um, we had planned a trip to India uh, for October, and then no, and then we talked about January, then no, then it only worked out well right here in the summer. And that gives me an opportunity to tell you a little bit about the fact that we uh, as a church um, had an initiative that we've been working on for years where we, there is uh, a state in India that has a minority people, minority mean much less than the population, right, of 22 or over 20 million people. And you say, how can a state have 20 million people in it and it not be the majority? I think that's more than Pennsylvania, right? Well, in a, in a nation of 1.3 billion or whatever they are, you can pull this off. And no one was reaching this people with the gospel. And this church, if you're newer to the church, you may know little about this, has been praying for and working for and kind of adopting this people group. And we sent three families uh, almost two years ago there. And um, uh, this was my first opportunity to get over to visit, and uh, it was needed. Listen, it's not, it's not like you can just drop yourself Um, uh, get off the plane, and boom, you're done. Everybody loves Jesus, and you're done. Rather, um, the first couple years are normally the the most trying for for new folks on a field like that, and we sent all three families have children. They have to set up house, and they have to learn language. They have to get acquainted with the culture, and this was an opportunity for me and my wife to go and really give pastoral care to a team that, that needs it right now and spend a lot of time with each member and, and, and even the children, you can't forget the children, they need to be ministered to and loved and talked to. And I had a lot of time for that. I also got to preach a couple of sermons while I was there because our church uh, or our group is meets and values every week church. And, and you might think, well, don't all missionaries do that? I wish that were the case. There are a lot of missionaries in this particular area uh, not aiming for the same people group we are. Um, and I am not only shocked but saddened how many of them neglect meeting together. Hebrews 10, 20, uh, 24, is it? 25, one of those two, says, Do not neglect meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. And we as believers must have church if we're going to... We, we, we need community, or we don't come out right. But sometimes workers, whether they're pastors seminary students or missionaries can think, well, I'm so spiritual because I'm doing the work. Um, But our team meets every Sunday, and they worship, and uh, we have uh, two members of the worship band there, and um, so actually the music's pretty good, Um, and um, 
my wife was able to take all the kids and do kids' church each week, which was great, and uh, while well, we worshiped, and, and, uh, and even another missionary family has joined them just because they see the need for that kind of nurturing in their life, and we, we do need that. And we also brought another couple with us who plans on joining the team and gave them the opportunity. But it just so happens all this had to happen in one summer. And uh, what that helps me to do is truly appreciate my church even more. And I just love the people of this church. And I love this church. And and that's the way it's supposed to be. The Holy Spirit makes us to need community. And so in that, let me just put out, love your church, period. Just love it. Just make your decision you're going to love your church because you need your church. (laughs) And and sometimes you can be so close to it that all you want to do is nitpick. And, and I don't, I'm not saying you at Harvest. I'm, this is general for Christians everywhere. I want to nitpick this or nitpick that or why do we do this or why do we do... You know, one of the greatest church theological lessons that you can learn is from The Wizard of Oz. And if you've never seen The Wizard of Oz, I know most of you have, but the younger generation may not have, you're not a good American. <laughs> can we be real? You need to see the movie. We just all have seen it. If you haven't seen it, you're not in the club. Please watch the movie. But the whole point is Dorothy has to go searching for Emerald City way far away till she values what she always had when she comes home. And there's no perfect church out there. Um, They all have their warts, and their warts look like me (laughs) or you. But I I do love love the church, and, and I love this church, and I never take for granted... I, I count down Sundays in my life, and now Friday nights, because I get to preach then. Because that's, that's what I get very excited about, the, the whole church coming together, and we share the word together. And, each, and I know that's a finite number that I get to participate in, that one day will come, it'll be my last Sunday, and God will say, okay, you're done. And, um, and so each one of them is more precious to me than Jules. And uh, so it's good, and I love the church. The church was fine without me. It really was. There's so many good shepherds and good folks and people working. Uh, but it's good to be loved too. And a lot of people let me know that you, you do care when I'm away. Uh, there's probably some saying, I didn't say that. <laughs> but I love you too. <laughs> but um, it, it is good to be back. It's good to be here to break the word of God together with you, and so we're going to do that. We've been going through Psalms this summer, and this is my first shot at it, and, I, and I've been just enjoying all the messages I've heard electronically on the other side of the world on Psalms. I think Psalms is a book that, that can be, um, it, it's, it's very big, and they are songs to be sung, but did you know something I just learned recently? That Jesus quoted the Psalms more than any book in the Old Testament. And he quotes a lot of books in the Old Testament, but he quotes the Psalms more numerously. And, 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 and he was a, a good, God-loving man. And he meditated on the Word, and he chose the Psalms many times. So we've had a sermon series that I think is awesome. You get these men of God standing up telling you they got to choose the Psalm they preach. So it's the one that touched their heart. And if you're a Christian for a while, you're going to have a Psalm that grabs your heart or two or three or favorites. If you're a new Christian, you think there's only one Psalm, right? Psalm 23. No, there's more. You can read more and, and they will grab your heart. So 
Um, I, I only have a couple shots at this, so I chose one that grabs my heart, and that's Psalm 131. So if you would open your Bibles to Psalm 131, it's not a very long psalm, but don't let its size fool you. It's powerful. I, I, the title of this message is Settling Our Anxious Souls, and um, for the people at, at, the, at the Petroleum Valley campus, I know your campus pastor has pointed out. Uh, to you that because uh, it's on it's it's on audio and I listen online that sometimes my sermon titles don't seem to make any sense at all and I might be insulted by that but I actually see his point they make sense to me you know, the, the mechanics of a raving mind but maybe your minds are raving and you don't get my common sense I don't know But I think in this case, even to the pastor of the PVC campus, I think he can even see that this time I've matched up the title and the message, Settling Our Anxious Souls is the whole goal of this message. And everyone here has anxious souls. We're all anxious sometimes, some chronically. And just admit it, go ahead and be a basket case. Jesus only saves basket cases. Everybody's messed up in some ways. (laughs) Everyone's messed up. Everyone has an anxious soul, and at times it's at peace, and times anxious again. Listen, trials are going to come to every follower of Jesus. Trials will come to every follower of Jesus. There are preachers who are selling the message that they won't come if you're a follower of Jesus. Please don't buy what they're selling. Because it's not true. Because the master, Jesus himself, said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I've overcome this world. The trials themselves are not what destroys a Christian. It's our emotional and mental response to the trials that determines the outcome of our faith. That's why two people can go through similar trials. One comes out bitter One walks away from the faith, and one comes out tenderized, stronger, and more at peace. And so we have a part to play in settling our own anxious souls and getting through trials. We want to, as it says in Romans 5, rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. It changes us within A human being can be very impressive in his gifts and skills as a young person, but if he doesn't get some hard knocks, he's going to be shallow within. And he's not going to, he's going to ruin it. He's going to be like that great athlete, pick the one that it is, who's just like a train wreck, who everyone says, why are you throwing your life away? Because there's no character. Suffering, enduring suffering brings character to everyone's life who will endure And that character produces hope, and hope will never disappoint us, because God has guaranteed our future. So, Psalm 131, we want to get a remedy for our anxious souls so we can survive the trials of life. So, let's look at the psalm. It's very short, Psalm 131. Uh, It begins with the words, a song of ascents of David. That's a title... uh, those are introductory details. There's several psalms that are called Songs of Ascent, and David wrote it. Um, but the, it really begins with the words, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. 
I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed my soul. I've quieted my soul. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. All right, here's your, here's your outline so you can follow where we're going with this. Three upward steps in settling our anxious souls. If you're using your map, that's what it says right at the top there, right? Three upward steps for settling our anxious soul. Very simple outline, but it, it, it's, it's, it's what the text is going to bear, I believe. The, 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 it's called a song of ascents. Ascent means to go up. Right? To walk up. No one's exactly sure why the songs of ascent are called songs of ascent. Um, But the guess is that when Jews uh, go to worship God in what's called Zion or Jerusalem, they always say they're going up to Jerusalem or up to Zion, which is the same place, right? They, it doesn't matter if they're coming east, north, south, or west. They could be coming from the Himalayan mountains and really coming down. It doesn't matter. They would say they're going up. And so perhaps uh, it is thought that ascents mean we're going up to worship our God. So, so these are steps up, and that's going to work for my outline because we're going to take three upward steps in settling our anxious soul, and each verse is one of those steps that we need to put our foot on. So the very first verse is the first step. Step one in settling our anxious souls is we must learn and know our place before God. And this is the biggest step, and we're going to take the most time on this step. He says, and in your map, conveniently, because it's so short, you'll see the text is written there. If you look at it again, you'll see he says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high, and I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. It's Hebrew poetry here, and Hebrew poetry is not based on rhyme. Uh, One of the main tools it uses is called parallelism. In other words, one truth is given in several ways. And that's what you have. All three lines are saying the same thing slightly differently. My heart isn't lifted up. My eyes aren't raised high. I don't occupy my mind. The, the, the New American Standard would say my heart is not proud, right? And, and my eyes are not haughty. And I don't think on things too wonderful for me. Uh, both are good translations. But you'll note there's a progression. There's the eyes, the heart, and the mind, right? What I see... My heart, actually the heart, the eyes, and the mind, but all three are there. The heart is who you are. It's the seat of yourself. It's not the thumping thing in your chest. The eyes, the way you look at things, and obviously the mind, the way you, you think. So what, what does verse 1 mean when he says, my heart is not lifted up? If you're going through trial, does this mean I'm not supposed to worry about what's going on? I'm not supposed to think about it. I'm just supposed to obey. Is it like what Lord Tennyson wrote in the Battle of the Light Brigade when he says, theirs is not to make reply. Theirs is not to reason why. Theirs is but to do and die into the valley of death, rode the 600. There's a reason why certain poetic words survive time. Boy, that's a soldier's courage. They're, they're being, the soldiers are being said, look, this is going to hurt. The battle's going to be tough. It really doesn't matter to you why the generals have chosen this. Your job is out of duty and out of honor and of love of country. You fire in there and fight no matter how it hurts. And we can be tempted when we see verse 1 to think that's what's being said. And as glorious as that is, that's not what's being said. 
David is not talking about the unquestioning duty and courage of the soldier. That's a good picture for a Christian, but maybe for another picture. This is a different one. When he says, when, you, when we read, I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, we should think of Job. Remember, David is a man of the word. He meditated on the word day and night. But he didn't have that much of the word because not that much was written. He had the books of Moses. He had the book of Judges. Well, probably didn't even have that in the book of Joshua. I mean, Samuel probably wrote the book of Judges and he anointed David king. Maybe he had Judges. It's like, I just finished this book, David. It hasn't gone to printing, but you can read it. I'm going to call it Judges. <laughs> I'm working on first and second me. <laughs> Some of you will get that later. But he did have the book of Job, thought to be one of the oldest books in the Bible. So let's, let's take some time and look at verse 1 through Job. Job, if you've never heard of Job, and, and I know there could be some who never have, he was a, he was a godly man um, who, who had much wealth much and a great big family, and, and, and God was bragging on him before the spirit beings, and the devil said, well, of course, he's an awesome godly man. You've blessed him with health, wealth, and family. Who wouldn't love you? And then God allowed Satan to take all those things away. Ten, ten kids died in one shot. He lost all his... his uh, his camels and horses or whatever they did by wealth. And then finally he lost his own health. He was in excruciating pain, uh, boils all over his skin. He had to scrape them with, with, a, with, a, with a piece of clay just to make it feel better. And um, so he was, he was in great suffering. And, and his wife famously said to him, why don't you curse God and die? And his wife really takes a beating for this. People always criticize his wife. I do not criticize his wife. I would think death might be welcome at that moment. I don't blame her. I'm not saying she should have said it, but dang, how much can one man take? But the Bible says in all this, he did not sin. But he had friends. And when you're hurting, your friends come over, and that's a good thing. Uh, and him and his friends were a bit of a philosopher's club. They were sophists. They like to sit around and think, I guess, because they sit around and talk a lot. And then you read Job, you'll see they're going to have a philosophical discussion about the nature of suffering and the nature of his suffering. And that's what makes this book such a gift to us, because the truths God reveals in that book are for all times. And so his friends begin to tell him, Job, we have to conclude that you blew it, or God would not be doing this to you. How many of you have felt that in your own life? What have I done wrong? Because life hurts. And his friends were saying that, and Job's like, you're wrong. You're wrong. (laughs) You guys are horrible comforters. And God stood with him on that. So Job was not suffering because he sinned. He was not suffering because of an unrighteous life. The Bible says clearly in all this, Job did not sin. But Job did make a mistake while he was suffering. And there's where the wisdom is going to come for you and me. Job's mistake was he lifted his heart, his eyes became haughty, and his thoughts were on things far beyond him. He swerves into pride right around chapter 29 when he begins to question God's behavior towards him. I want to show it to you. We won't read it all, but let me just, we're just going to stop on a couple Job passages and I'll show it to you. Job 29.2, we see Job's first big mistake. While suffering, 
After all this discussion with these men, where he says a lot of good things, he then says this in 29.2, Oh, that I were as in months of old, as in the days when God watched over me, when his lamp shone upon my head, when by his light I walked through darkness, as I was in my prime. What's he saying? He's saying there was a day when God used to watch over me, implying what? That's right. He's implying God stopped paying attention and that's why I hurt. God used to bless me. God's turned away his, oh, back when I was in my prime. When I did right and God blessed the righteous man. And then after this, we're not going to read it, but you can read it on your own later. You'll see he starts to list his good deeds. This is what I did for God. This is how I obeyed my mommy when I was a kid, and I, I told the truth uh, at school, and I didn't steal from my employer. That might be what you or I might say, and I gave to people who needed it. Well, he started telling his good deeds, how he fought for the cause of God, and God rightfully blessed him for it. And now he's looking at God, and his implication is this, God, my friends aren't telling the truth, I know that but you have not given me an explanation for why life hurts. And you owe it to me. He's overstepping his bounds. We overstep our bounds when we tell God he owes us an explanation. Then self-pity starts to creep in. You know what that is, self-pity? We all know that, right? That sickly, sweet drug that calls us and it promises to be satisfying, and it never is. Where we're the victims. Oh, how horrible it is to be mean. Other people don't have to do what I have to do. And he, 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 it never satisfies, but oh, it promises to, doesn't it? He even points to God and says, look, I used to, I used to rebuke men for you, bad men who do bad things, and I held up your standard, and I used to tell them, stop doing bad things, and they would do it. They would listen to me, and now those evil men are laughing at me. They're laughing at me. They're mocking me. In verse, chapter 30, verse 21, we can drop in into his diatribe against God where he says, you have turned cruel to me. And he began to subtly justify himself. Verse 25 of chapter 30 says, Did I not weep for him whose day was hard? Was not my soul grieved for the needy? Was I not one of the good guys? When other people were hurting, they could count on me. I'm hurting, but I apparently can't count on you. What have I done wrong, God? Tell me, I'll listen to you. Chapter 31, verse 3 and 4 He's working himself into a lather, and he's in trouble, right? You ever, you ever <laughs> been in trouble with somebody, and it's probably your fault, and, uh, and you start, well, I guess I'll tackle this, and you start kind of slow, but the more your mouth says, the more you dig the hole, and you just won't shut up. The person lets you hang yourself by not interrupting. Well, God's doing that to Job. He's not interrupting him. So now, here he is, by the time he gets chapter 31, he goes, is not calamity for the unrighteous? Isn't this supposed to happen to unrighteous people? Unrighteous! And disaster is for the workers of iniquity. Then he says this, does not he see my ways? Does he not number all my steps? Who's at fault here? He's saying. 
Suffering is reserved for people who disobey God. God, if I've done wrong, I don't know what it is. I think you owe me an explanation. At this point, we can look back in time and say, Job, just stop now. Just, just stop. But he doesn't stop. He goes on. If you keep reading, his arguments go like this. Did I walk in falsehood? Show me where. Did I pursue women who weren't my wife? Find one. Did I plot to rob my neighbors? Do I mistreat my employees? Do they say I mistreated them? No, they don't. Do I withhold my wealth from the poor and from the orphan and the widow? What would they say about whether I cared for them? Am, Am I known as a greedy lover of money? I don't think so. Was I filled with pride? Was I ever impressed with my own greatness? Did I take pleasure in the downfall of my enemies? Or was I even humble about that? And then he finally shouts out, Oh, that I had one to hear me. Now, if you're an African-American preacher in an African-American church, and you say, oh, I wish someone could hear me, it's a point to say amen. amen. But that's not the point here with Job. Because he is not that. He's indicting God. I'm complaining to you, God, and no one can hear me. And finally, chapter 31, verse 35, he says this. To God, here is my signature. Let the Almighty answer me. Now in the text, this is followed by a rebuke from a young Elihu, and it's a good rebuke, but this is not the heart of the text. After Elihu gets done, Job gets what he wants. God steps up and says, okay, I'll answer you. And in chapter 38, verse 2 to 3, God begins his answer with a question. And this question is the one that guides the whole rest of the book. If you're studying Job, you need to stop on Job 38, 2 and 3, because the whole rest of the book is an answer to this question. And when he gets to the end, Job knows the answer and gives the answer. Here's the question from God. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is on the earth giving me advice when he has no idea what he's talking about. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Okay? He has Job's attention. Verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. When I set the globe spinning in its spot where it would not move. When I figured out the physics of that and measured it out and threw it in there, where were you? Were you in the back of one of the engineers telling me the calculations? Because I don't remember that. And he goes on like this. A little sample by the time he gets to verse 12. He says, have you commanded the morning since your days began? Implication, because I have. Have you told the dawn its place? When the I tell the sun as the earth rotates where to land its light. He turns to the stars at one point in chapter 38. He says, can you, these are constellations, can you bind the chain of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Those are the constellations. Can you, can you do that? Can you just throw stars out? And make them land where you want and stay where you put them. Can you lead forth Maseroth in their season? 
Or can you guide the bear with its children? I guess that would be the Big Dipper. Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Do you know the laws I set up to make it stay? Can you establish their rule on earth? As I was reading that, a song from a band came called Ghost Ship came up, and it's worth you actually searching for on your Spotify called Where Were You? And uh, this is a side note. It's not Just look up Where Were You by Ghost Ship, where the guy really... And, and the song comes to a crescendo when he says things like, God is saying, do you tell the lightning where to strike? Because God does. I have an oak tree fell over on the back of my property that I found. Huge. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know how it fell. It doesn't look rotten. My, my guess is the maker of the universe told a lightning bolt where to strike. Do you bend the whole world to your will? God continues on, and he lists all the great things he's done in creation to show his glory. And Job listens, and then God pauses. He stops, and he lets Job talk. He says, chapter 40, verse 2, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? So the one, the one who can find fault in humans, are you going to find fault with me? He who argues with God, let him answer. At this point, I think Job's attitude has changed markedly. Because he responds, behold, I'm of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. It means I close my mouth. This is not the same guy, is it? What well, is? I've spoken once. I will not answer twice. I will proceed no further. Job is saying, I'm in over my head. Who am I to talk back to you? You might think, well, good. That ought to get you out of hot water, right? Your beat down is over. No. Chapter 40, verse 7, 8. God says, get ready for round two, boy. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you'll make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And for the next two chapters, God details the greatness in making creation. That's all those delicious verses about alligators and rhinos and how he made them. Job is trying, he tried to match wits with someone way too smart for him. Not a little too smart for him. Off the charts too smart for him. You have no business even asking him. No place to question God. No place to question God's wisdom. And no place to question God's kindness. And when God finishes, and you can read it for yourself, but when he finishes... Job answers God's opening question. Remember the question I told you was the key? Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Job gives the answer, and here's what he says. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And he repented, and by the way, God would bless him, doubling everything. Double the crops, double the wealth. Gave him 10 more kids. You say, we didn't double that. We did. The other 10 are in heaven. Therefore, I've uttered what I did not understand. That was my mistake. Things too wonderful. And now we're back to Psalm 131. 
And the first step to settling your anxious mind is you must embrace Job's worldview. Step one is you must say, oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. I don't have to know why. I don't have to know what you were thinking. And it could be big theological questions that bug your anxious mind. Why do so many people go to hell? I don't have to know. Or it could be very local like Job. I don't have to know why I'm in pain. Why people hate me. Why that guy is rich and I'm poor. I don't have to know. My eyes are not... I'm, he, David is saying, I'm taking my eyes down. My mind does not go and occupy itself with things too great for me. We must adopt the posture of Job. You and I, do we justify ourselves? Do we ever say to God, God, what have I done to deserve this? I've already had enough pain in my life. And look at those sinners over there. They get away with everything. Some of them are your siblings. Some of the ugliest sibling rivalry is Christians who can't get over the fact that God gave Sis a baby and not you, and she's the slob and you're not. Well, get over it. Because God may not ever tell you why. Do we feel sorry for ourselves? Do we? Do you? I mean, be honest with yourself. No one knows. Do you think God owes you a justification for why you suffer? So, that's what, that, you're not going to get to a peace of mind. You won't get peace of mind. You will never get peace of mind until you begin with step one. Repenting. Saying, uh, who am I to argue with you? My child was born with Down syndrome. Who am I to argue with you? I have cancer. Who am I to argue with you? You will not get to peace. I lost my job, but who am I to argue with you? You won't get there until you take that step. Look, the point here isn't that God doesn't care about Job. Never get that. In fact, the whole book shows God has great concern. He gives him his full attention. The point is, his ways are beyond Job's understanding. That doesn't mean they're bad. His eyes were on Job. His full attention is on you. You have not fallen through the finger cracks of God's hand like a piece of sand that he can't see. His full attention is on you. David's song begins where Job's trials end. I can't understand why life is so hard. I can't understand why I'm such a mess. But I don't have to know what God is doing. Second step. Won't take as long. In settling our anxious soul is we must work to quiet our own souls. Once we're in the right posture, we begin with humble trust, but then we have to turn to ourself and say, what's my responsibility in training my brain to look at things in God's way? David presents a beautiful picture of a quieted soul. Let's look again at verse 2. He says, I've calmed and quieted my soul. But look who he says did it. I did it. Yeah, the Holy Spirit's working with him. But he's working on the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful in your life. The Word of God is not just more data. 
Romans 12, 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The Word of God will actually transform us. But you have a responsibility to learn it and then apply it when you're anxious. And that's what he does. I have calmed my own soul. I've quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul. Now, when we think weaned, we think maybe a, a two-year-old who's done nursing. But that's not how the word's being used here. It, it's, it's an event. So the baby's finished nursing, right? The baby was all cranky and whatnot. So mama, mama pulled it towards her and, and nursed and, and then burped and changed diaper if she had to, whatever she had to do. And now the baby is satisfied and sleeping. You can almost hear the baby sigh, right? Just... And, the, and, and that's the picture of the peace of David's soul in the midst of trial. I, I stopped looking there and I've quieted my soul. And, and the point here is we have to see that we have a responsibility of getting to a peaceful soul. Very important if you're... And, and this is not academic for me, by the way. This isn't experimental. This, I picked this psalm because of my own life. Going through long periods of s- struggles... Long periods of darkness. And then God flicked a light on once on Psalm 131. And it, it just helped me. So I'm not, you know, I'm not being insensitive. It's easy for you to say, oh, I have a responsibility in this, but you're not hurting like I am. We all hurt like you do sometime. And if you hurt worse than everyone, you still don't hurt worse than Job. So the lesson stays the same. The alternative is to wait on your circumstances to change to give you peace, and that's not a Christian idea. This is where I got, there are Christians who will sell you that. You're going to name it, you're going to claim it, and you're going to have your best life now. Don't buy what they're selling. I mean, you can, but um, don't buy it. Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. And he, he was talking to 12 guys who would find themselves hung upside down on crosses, stoned, thrown in oil, beaten, jailed, And he said, in the midst of that, you will have my peace. So you don't wait on circumstances. You have a responsibility. I have a responsibility of quieting my own soul. And it's not easy. And it's not just one time. You're not just going to get to peace once. You're going to have to do this throughout your life. Sometimes a lot, sometimes a little. But if you... Pay close attention to the Bible, especially the New Testament. You'll see that that God expects you to struggle with inner peace. And he gives you so many encouragements. I'm going to throw a couple at you, but the Bible's filled with them. Jesus was very helpful here when he said in in Matthew 26, 6, excuse me, Matthew 6, 6, look at the birds of the air. For they don't sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? He's talking to humans who are always anxious about having enough money. I don't care where you go in the world, you won't have enough money because you'll spend all that you have. When, when Rockefeller was the richest man in the world, he was asked, as the richest man in the world, how much is enough? He said, just a little more. We never have enough. We're always worried about losing what we have. And here is Jesus saying, I know your soul's anxious. Calm it with this truth. Birds don't worry. Look at a bird. Just look at a bird, he says. You ever see a bird? You just go by him. Stop and look at a bird. These are one of the least 
the industrious farmers you'll ever find. They just get nothing done on the farm. In fact, they're thieves. <laughs> but still, God provides for them. And then he says, aren't you of more value than they? And he means to God. Well, if God's looking after a dumb little bird. Jesus goes on, therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Jesus is making the point, God cares for you, and right now is really all you have to focus on when it comes to trouble. Listen, um, the thoughts of tomorrow are what burden the anxious mind. Take it from an anxiety veteran, someone who's done anxiety as good or better than probably as everyone in this room. I, I can do anxiety really well. I got more gold medals than Simone Biles in worry. Stuck the landing! <laughs> God has given me a great deal of victory over time, a great deal, and so there's hope. But I'll guarantee you, the sickness of the ancient, of the anxious mind is tomorrow's trouble. And here's Jesus saying, you know, do you live tomorrow? No, I live right now. Okay, why don't you worry about that? And we have a responsibility to take those words into our heart and meditate on them and talk to ourselves. It's all through the New Testament. Peter does the same. Um, in 1 Peter 5, he puts Psalm 131 together here. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. He's telling this to a people who are being persecuted. He goes right to Psalm 131 principle. Number one, be Job. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time He'll exalt you. There's always an end to your suffering. Cast all your anxieties on Him, because He cares for you. So step two is, you have to work to quiet your soul. You've got to talk to yourself. And by the way, this is why personal neglect of the Bible hurts you. It's not about reading enough Bible to prove you're a good Christian. Matter of fact, please never try to prove you're a good Christian. It only makes us into hypocrites when we do that. But neglect of the Bible will hurt your soul. A lot of people really think, well, studying the Bible is for those really solid Christians. I'm just a B-level Christian. I go to church and I hear it. My friend, you have needless pain and suffering in your life. Lots of it. Could be avoided. Don't neglect the word. Step three, the final step in settling the anxious soul, is we must look ahead to the good times to come. The anxious soul says, are there good times to come? Mm, don't say that. Don't say that. You, you, you ever been a, in a bad way and someone tries to comfort you? You know, you ever try to comfort a friend? Let's, let's make it about somebody else, even though it's about you and I once in a while. And, and you're like... I know it's hard, but, and then they go, yeah, but, blah, 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 blah. And you go, and you listen to what they say, and you go, yeah, I know. However, God says this, and it's going to be that, and they go, yeah, but, blah, 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 blah. And you can do this about four or five rounds until you go, you're right, it does stink. Why don't you drive off a bridge? <laughs> Whenever it comes after yeah, but in life is from Satan. There's a rule for you right there. It's almost always true. Whenever it comes after yeah, but it's from Satan. Hope does not disappoint because God has said there will always be good times to come for the Christian. Not for everybody, but Jesus promises you it will end well. There is no suffering that's not temporary. 
You are eternal. And if your soul is safe in the hands of Christ, if he's died for your sins and you've received that gift forever and ever, you're not going to have any trouble. Your suffering is just for an instant. Jesus gives you ammo on that. John 14, 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't let them be troubled. He knows they're going to be. That's why he says that. Trust in God. Trust in me. Trust us. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I, told you, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Jesus is saying, quiet your troubled soul with this thought. I'm coming back to get you. And whatever it is, it'll, I'll make it all better. Quiet your soul. Believe in Jesus. Good times to come. And that's verse 3. David is begging his nation, God's people, to do what he's done. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore. God, Israel's God is faithful. Your God is faithful. Jesus Christ came to, without sin and died for your sins to purchase you. If you're not a Christian yet, what are you waiting for? God has revealed himself in Christ. I'm not going to do a long begging session. I'm just going to tell you, what on earth are you waiting for? The God who made you has sent his son to save you, and now you're learning about him. Believe in him, and you will have hope forever. If you want to grow in Christ, you must read your Bible. But if you read only one other book to grow in Christ... It's not a theology book I'd recommend. It's not a John Piper book, although they'd be high in the top ten. It's Corey Ten Boom's Hiding Place. God has just packed power into that. And in that book, Corey tells of her sister Betsy, who in the darkest of situations would say, there is no pit so deep that he is not deeper still. Christian brothers and sisters, we must never quit. We run this race to the end. You've made it this far. We do, not, we do not quit. We have a good God. We don't have to have the answers. We humble ourselves. We repent. We quiet our souls. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Harvest Community Church. We invite you to join us at any one of our four campuses located in Catanning, Petrolia Valley, Indiana, and Freeport. For more information, check us out on the web at harvestpa.org.